0: If you are located outside of the European Union, the United Kingdom and or Switzerland, then you need an authorized representative. So I have a good news. You have found it with Easy Medical Device. And if you are also in need of an importer in Europe and in Switzerland, then contact us definitely at info at easymedicaldevice.com. I-N-F-O at easymedicaldevice.com. And I'm sure we can help you. Welcome to the Medical Device Made Easy podcast. Here is Munir Lazuzzi from easymedicaldevice.com. And today we'll talk about post-marketing surveillance. So we talked about that in other episodes of the podcast, but it was specifically for the European Union. But today I want to see what is the difference with the U.S. market, because in the U.S. you have also to perform post-marketing surveillance. And for that, I have with me Rob Packard. So Rob, welcome to the Medical Device Made Easy podcast. Thank you very much, Munir. Great. So, uh, Rob, I mean, it's been a long time that I'm, I'm also following some of your videos on your channel. So really interesting topics that you are bringing in. And I'm really happy to have you here today on the on the podcast. So, uh, Rob, can we have a small introduction of yourself for people maybe that don't know you or want to know more about you? Sure. So um, start
1: at the beginning. I'm a chemical engineer from UConn, uh, University of Connecticut. I started out in the biotech and pharma industry for a decade doing R&D and scale-up of natural products and recombinant DNA products. In 2000, I switched over to the medical device industry. In 2005, I had my first job in quality and regulatory, so I I obviously didn't start there. In fact, I was CEO of my own medical device company in 2004. And uh, 2009, I joined BSI. I was a notified body auditor for three and a half years. Wow. In 2000. 12, I started my own consulting business in regulatory affairs and I hired my first employee in 2017, Mary Voder. and we are about to be 12 people. Um, so we are growing. Uh, so it's now my dream of having a firm that does quality and regulatory consulting for medical device startup companies.
0: No, it's really, really, really great. And as I said, I, I'm following you and following also what uh, you are doing and uh, you are doing really great and really happy also that, uh, Things are, 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 really growing because mainly, uh, we are doing the same at easy medical device, trying to help medical device manufacturers. And I really also appreciate what, uh, what you are doing there, um, in, in the market specifically. So, um, in terms of, um, discussion. So today the topic will be post marketing surveillance. Uh, so this is something that we talk a lot here in europe because of the new regulation of umdr where we are now uh, yeah trying to understand how to execute that with the new regulation but i wanted today that we are really focusing on the u.s market uh, because we have some people that are maybe also asking themselves oh, should i do exactly the same as what we are doing in europe for the us so the question mainly is what is but maybe before to really start on all that maybe for some people that say, okay, they are talking about this topic, but what is it exactly? Can we just make maybe a small summary of what is a post-marketing surveillance?
1: Sure. Um, The post-market surveillance is defined in ISO 1345, it's clause 8.2.1 for feedback. And it doesn't say customer feedback, it's just feedback in general. And this one relatively new standard that was created or uh, a technical report It's ISO-TR-20416, specifically for post-market surveillance that really goes much more in depth about what post-market surveillance is, but it's not just a reactive system where you're responding to complaints and adverse events. It's supposed to be a proactive system where you go out there and look at what competitor products have and try to prevent those from happening to your product. Look at um, trade shows, look at literature, look at um, send out proactive surveys, to try to figure figure out what kind of use errors are occurring in products, cybersecurity issues. So it's it has to have a proactive element to it, and it should be planned, documented, and you have to show evidence in the form of reports that you're conducting this on a
0: schedule as planned. And Nothing like that exists in the US. (laughs) Yeah, okay, great. But what is important that that you mentioned is mainly also the fact that, yeah, you have to look at trade shows or what people are saying about you or your company. I saw also that you have also to look at social media sometime because mainly we have some auditors that say, oh, do you have a social media presence? Are people talking about you? Do you have a Facebook page talking about maybe you or whatever? So this is also something that you have to look at. Yes. um, Some companies, it's more,
1: oh, the auditor asked us if we had this, so we'll, we'll do a token look for this to see if there is anything. But the right way to do it is to actually have a website that's built for customers to give you feedback, to give your sales representatives apps where they can gather customer feedback. And one of the things I suggest to companies when I'm in a consulting role is give your Give your customers, whenever you have a consumable component, give them the ability to create an app to reorder things and then periodically ask them, uh, "Would you, could you answer this question? So instead of inundating them with these surveys that take long periods of time, just every once in a while when they're already on your app and they're already placing an order for something, ask them a question. And so by randomizing when you ask and who you ask, you can cover all your post-market surveillance questions without burdening your customers and in, in annoying them. And you get a, a higher touch uh, customer service feature, but it's not intended to be a customer satisfaction survey yeah. for medical devices. You're supposed to link it to your risk management program and identify um, things that you can't identify whether your risk controls are adequate or not in a pre-market benchtop or, uh, short clinical study, those are the things you're supposed to be verifying in a post-market surveillance plan, not the things that are, is my product sterile and how do I
0: know? Exactly. <laughs> no, I think I think it's great because, yeah, you have sometimes some marketing survey which are more like, uh, is the color good? Is this and that? I mean, it's, mm-hmm. It's not really interesting, but it's more about, as you said, link to the risks. What are the risks for uh, this product? What are uh, maybe verify if some of the risks that you have identified on your risk management mm-hmm. are available or not, or if they are really uh, high risk or low risk or frequencies high or low. So it's really something interesting. Uh, but I think you gave some good techniques also here about if you have a website and provide survey automatically through a website, etc. Because we have a lot of people that say, "Yeah, it takes a lot of time to send a survey. We never receive an answer. Uh, mm-hmm. We have to send them and verify who received it, who we send, etc." So, but there are a lot of automatic tools that are existing now, yeah, so that yeah. can help you. So it's mainly something that I mean, I if, mean, if and you, you don't want to know
1: fits- just once a year. It's just like doing a manager review once a year. In at one point of the year, it tells you nothing about what happened eleven months prior and what. What does it matter if you take action on something that happened 11 months ago? Exactly. So doing smaller survey groups throughout the year is much more effective at catching emerging problems. For instance, an incompatibility with an accessory from a competitor or um, even your own company. Um, If you're looking for software updates and software patches that have a bug, You're never going to catch that if you do it once a year.
0: Exactly. I mean, it's uh, really important to have uh, this uh, regular uh, check and frequency and uh, trying to solve the issues now and not waiting, as you've said, at the end of the year to check what happened in January or February. So it's really great. Um, In terms of, you had a a great comment because when you described the post-marketing surveillance, you said said a lot of things that were exactly what we are doing in Europe, but you said in the US it's completely different. So what's the difference here we are talking about? So it's on several
1: levels. Number one, the FDA doesn't have a requirement to have ISO 1345 yet. They're talking about it. They've put together a proposal, but it hasn't been implemented yet. And the big issue is how long will it take to implement? So there's no post-market surveillance requirement in the quality system breaks at all. There's no feedback clause. There's no post-market requirement. And in the 510K process, there's no place for post-market surveillance to be included in this submission except two places. Okay. One of those places is under cybersecurity. They want you to have a post-market sur- cybersecurity plan. And part of the reason for that is they won't let you use the frequency of occurrence of harm as a way of estimating risk. Okay. Because you don't know. You haven't put it on the market yet, and it's always changing with cybersecurity. So they want you to do post-market surveillance of cybersecurity specifically. The other area where they also say you're not allowed to use probability of occurrence as a way of estimating risk is human factors or usability. They say, no, you can't use that. You have to do a post-market activity. So they want you to be looking for use errors in your product. So right off the top, every single person that's doing post-market surveillance, no matter what country they're in, they should be saying, does my device have cybersecurity risks? Does my di- device have usability risk? If it does, I should be asking proactively about those in my post-market surveillance surveys. not because the FDA says so, not because the Europeans say so, be- because those two risks, inherently the only way I can verify the probability of occurrence is asking after the product's on the market. And it's going to change as people's training changes, as they use different accessories, as um, they, the technology evolves your experience like, well, that doesn't work like this other product. That's very strange. I, I, I used it wrong. That will change over time. So those are two areas where it's required in a 510 K, but it doesn't say post-market surveillance. It says post-market cybersecurity plan. And it says what, what evidence you have of how you're going to identify use errors Um for your URRA, which is another thing that's not in any standard. <laughs> so in, but, in um, terms in,
0: in, th- in terms of, so let's say that my product has no, it's not a software, so, or it's not linked to any network, mm-hmm. so there is no cybersecurity and the product is easy to use. Let's say there is no reusability really mm-hmm. risk or whatever. In that case for such product, even if it's a class two, or whatever, it, it, it doesn't need any post-marketing surveillance, so I can place it on the market and I don't have to check regularly. That, that is that correct happening. in the U.S.
1: However, the only other way that there is a proactive requirement for um, post-market surveillance in the U.S. for a class two device that doesn't have cybersecurity or use errors would be in the risk management process. Risk management, they recognize 14971, that has a post-production and post-production requirement for surveillance. And as an input to the design process, you're supposed to use the outputs of the risk management process. So whenever you're designing a new device, the first step should be look at other devices that are similar, look at previous versions of your device to identify possible um, use errors, possible um, risks, hazards, Anything that can go wrong with the device before you even design and build one. So that's the only other place that you're going to have a proactive element for a device that doesn't have software and doesn't have cybersecurity. But that's it. Everything else in the U.S. system for a class one or class two device is going to be reactive. So what I mean by that is it's complaint handling, adverse event handling, recalls are the only places and until recently, we didn't even have a UDI code to track anything. So okay. you had companies reporting things to the wrong company in the wrong product.
0: Okay. So it's, uh, I mean, I know that we, we have the chance now also to have UDI in Europe. So I hope it will be also helping us to track uh, all those information. But uh, yeah, I know yeah. that US was the first doing that. So yeah, you, you you tested it. Now we are taking, if I can say, all the, the good things and, and using that also in Europe. Um, in terms of, um, now, okay, let's remove those products that have no cybersecurity or usability risk or other uh, elements. And for the ones that have cybersecurity or usability risk, or um, what should when should we start to do that? So is it like um, immediately after you obtain your approval to place it on the market, you have to start to do this collection of data, or one year after, or is there a delay? What, what, is, what, what well, is the timeline and frequency for that? you have to submit a plan for post
1: market cybersecurity to the FDA in your submission. It's one of the line items in the software section of an E-Star for a 510K, you have to attach it. So then they're going to expect during an FDA inspection that you're actually doing it according to your plan. One of the things in there is you have to actually subscribe to databases where they report cybersecurity vulnerabilities, for example. So if you're using a Windows operating system, or Linux operating system you have to subscribe to the services that report those vulnerabilities, monitor them actively, and then when you identify a vulnerability, patch them and then update them. And they're they're now with a new cybersecurity guidance that's gonna be coming out shortly here, the FDA is actually expecting that you provide um, evidence that you've implemented that in the form of test reports.
0: So-, so- so that'll be a big change for companies. Are they are they checking? So is FDA checking, or how, um, is there is there like a kind of a time point or where they are coming and say, I'm coming here now to verify, or or is it like random? Um, I haven't ever seen an FDA inspector ask the
1: questions. Oh, and I don't know whether it's because they haven't been trained or they're not enforcing it. My my guess is yes.
0: So. Uh, My guess is they don't have training and they aren't enforcing it. Okay, so (laughs) let's say that. Okay, let's say that now. uh, I am a manufacturer. I am selling my device in Europe, um, Mm -hmm. and I'm not. I know that I should perform a post marketing surveillance, but I'm not doing that. Will Mm -hmm. I have some problems or not? Um, I think the the issue
1: for the FDA is that they probably don't have inspectors that are capable of auditing that adequately. Okay. I just don't think they do. Now, if you're an MD SAP company and you're not worried about FDA inspectors, you're worried about an MD SAP auditor, exactly. they're fully qualified to ask those questions. And it's just a matter of whether they start. But I have not seen an MD SAP auditor ask those questions either, because probably they don't know enough about cybersecurity.
0: Okay. No, I think I I, I think, I think it's there's great. a
1: level of competency that you have to have to ask these questions in the first place. No, and there aren't a lot of auditors out there or inspectors that are trained on cybersecurity.
0: Okay. And um as as we have in the US we have class 1, class 2, class 3. So is there a difference between the classes? I suppose there is less uh, maybe post-marketing surveillance to be done on class one, maybe a bit more on class two and a lot on class three. So I think it's the, this is the proportion that we should see. Now. What wh- I'll tell you what I thought it was, and then I'll tell you what I found because I did okay. some fact checking
1: before I got on here today. So what I thought was there were no requirements for class one or class two, and there was a hundred percent requirement for class three. I okay. was wrong on both counts. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so... There is a. There are two databases. If you go on the FDA's website for the database page, so medical devices and then databases, there's a whole long list of databases, and I go to that page every single day. At the very top of the list, the first database is called the 522 Post-Market Surveillance Studies Program. Okay. In that program, there are 19 orders for post-market surveillance. All of those are – all of those except for four – are class one or class two devices. And I think they're all class two. I don't think there's any class one, but the class two, there are 19 orders total. Four of them are PMAs, which makes it a class three. One of them is a de novo, which makes it a class two and 14 or 510K. But these are devices where there's something inherently risky about them that the company was not able to address in the design. A good example would be reusable duodenoscopes.
0: So there's uh, a talking, working channel that's hard to clean. So are we talking here about a count of number of post-marketing surveillance for classification? This was, it was never required at the time of the
1: 510k clearance. It was required only after the product was on the market and they had lots of adverse events. So this was the FDA said, based on the post-market adverse events that we're seeing, you shall start doing this. We want to plan and we want to see evidence you're following it. And we want it publicly available.
0: Okay. So can we say that? I mean, in Europe, as we said, uh, we have that pair the ISO 13485, also the MDR, all the requirements we have to do it. It says even that uh for class two uh to A to B, you have to do it every two years, for class three, you have to do it every uh every year, etc. So they are really strict on that. Can we say that in the US they don't
1: have that in the US for a class two device? Or, there's none, no class one. There's only 14 or 15 Class two devices, and all of them are high-risk Class two that if they were in Europe, the Europeans would be saying, please get this product off the market. Okay. They would say, this is not state-of-the-art. Please get it off the market. Redesign it. We're not going to support this as CE C-Mark product too much longer.
0: So can we say also that post-marketing surveillance in the U.S. is more like a punishment than something that people are doing? Yeah, it's the- it's a, a containment measure. Okay. No, I think yeah, it's
1: a- for a class two. Now, okay. for the class one, it's at. I'm sorry, for the class three devices, totally different story. Um, there are two two different categories. One is humanitarian device exemptions. Humanitarian device exemptions aren't a class one, two, or three. They're such a small market eight thousand users per or patients per year. That the FDA said we're not going to take it down a normal pathway. We're going to offer you a humanitarian device exemption, oh. it's sort of like a orphan drugs, but for devices. Yeah, and for those products out there, um, there are nine of them that have a post-market surveillance plan. So it's a post-market, post-approval study database or PAS database that the FDA has further down the list. But if you look for PASS database, PAS. There are nine of them that are for humanitarian device exemption. One is from, I believe, 2021. Um, I think seven of them are from the the 10 years prior. And then there's one that's before 2010. But there's only a total of nine of those. For the PMA, the class three PMA submissions that are normal, large market, mass produced, there are 237 of them. Okay. so that's a, a very large number of pma products that have post market surveillance plans but i thought it was 100% and the total number of pmas that have been approved is 1387
0: okay so, so we're time. looking at
1: 17% of the pmas have active pas studies so what that tells me is when you have a class 3 device the fda almost 100% of the time expects you to have a pas study when you launch but the past study might be a one-year study, a two-year study, a three-year study. Once you've met the requirements, they they evaluate again, should we continue to require this or should we uh, let them um, uh, sunset the, uh, the plan and no longer do any more post-market surveillance reporting uh, for the class three? And so they're saying 83% of the time, no need to continue, 17% of the time, you're not done yet, or we want you to continue.
0: Okay. So it's really the FDA who is uh, saying, is um, really making the the, the core Based say, on the continue. reports.
1: Okay. Yeah, it's based on real data. And that's not the kind of interaction we see from the notified bodies. That's the kind of interaction we see from the MDCG. Okay. So the medical device coordinating group in Europe, they're saying you shall, and we're writing a common specification... That's the that would be more like that other group, the 522 plans. Um, they're saying you shall do this, and for these class three devices, they're saying you shall do this. But once you've met the requirements um, and you finish your study, then in Europe you have to continue,
0: and in the U.S. you don't, unless the FDA says so. Okay. So that is a key difference. In terms of so, let's say that we have to do this uh, post marketing surveillance. What kind of data they are expecting you to gather and then to display or to show to to everyone? Um, the data that they
1: want you to provide is, um, if it's proactive data, they're wanting in the US FDA, they want you to look at other competitor products and identify what the risks are for those. Look at previous versions of your product identify those risks and document that in your – we identify these risks and they're in our risk management, and here's how we're going to control them. If it's post-market, it's very limited, and it's really only for cybersecurity, human factors, or Class three devices, and the FDA reviews it as part of their um, pre-market review and approval, and they say, yes, we agree with this, or no, we want you to add something to it. Um, And they're even agreeing or disagreeing with the frequency of it. But once again, the FDA is very focused on what are you going to do about complaints? What are you going to do about adverse event reporting? Please give us trend reporting of specific types of events. And they want you at the FDA to redo a review of your frequency of adverse events or complaints for every single type. Every single time it happens, okay. and that's just like Canada had in their guidance document a couple of years ago, or maybe it's only a year ago now. But um, the Health Canada said we want we have a new post market surveillance summary reporting requirement, like the PSURs that that Europe is re- providing, and they're saying if you have a negative outcome, we want you to report that to us right away. But we want the reports every year, no matter what but if it's negative, we need it right away. Okay. And so the FDA is very similar to that where if it's a negative outcome, they they want to know about it, but proactive things, they they really are not looking at that at all. They just want you to review the complaints and adverse events and identify if it's a change in the frequency that would require implementation of a corrective action.
0: So when, when you said that you have to gather data about your device or the device of your competitors, so are we talking about the device data that are coming also from outside of the US, like Europe or Brazil or Australia, or are we just focusing to the US market? Hey, just a second. Do you need an EU, Swiss, or UK representative? Then choose Easy Medical Device. We can represent you and also become your importer. Contact us at eo at eo.easymedicaldevice.com.
1: No, the, the FDA requires that you include any data for the same device in other countries. Okay. You're even required to report adverse events occurring in other countries. Okay. So if, if somebody dies or has a serious injury or in another country, or if an adverse event occurred that could result in a serious injury or death, you're required to report those to the FDA. And that's a mistake a lot of companies make when they're not familiar with U.S. law. They they don't report it and they were supposed to. So that's probably one of the number one uh, 483s or warning letters that we see companies get. They They're aware of it in one country, but didn't report it in the U.S. like they were supposed to. Canada has that now. Europe okay. has that. So all the countries are getting on the same page. We don't care what country it occurred in. If it could happen here with the same product, you need to report it here too.
0: Okay. Now, I think it's it's great. I mean, it's normal. As we said, we are yeah. not here just talking about uh, something that, uh, I mean, you you can maybe sell a low volume in, in, in the US and a big volume outside. And if there is a big issue outside, maybe it will not be visible really in the US because of that. So it's, it's good to have this kind of information here. Of course. But in terms of... Uh, gathering those data. I suppose mainly that you have to go to multiple websites, that you have to try to identify who are your competitors or the similar products and then try to gather all those data to then be able to build all that. So um so mainly how people can be doing that. So is there a certain way that people can be yes. um, visiting some website or there is some tools that are using for that are used for that? So um like I said, the FTA
1: is focused very much on um, reactive. So complaints and adverse events, not proactive. Whereas the ISO 1345 requirement is proactive. The Europeans are proactive, the Canadians are proactive. So if you have an ISO 1345 system, you're gonna have to go gather that proactive data. You have to have a procedure for it. And where I see the gap for most companies is that they only identify the databases that they're familiar with yeah. rather than learning about other databases. So I find a lot of people say, well, we can't gather anything for Europe because Udamed isn't giving it to us yet. I'm like, yep. that's yeah. not true. <laughs> 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 there are all kinds of adverse databases that
0: you can access. It's just not in Unibet yet. <laughs> exactly. I mean, you have the you have the websites of the countries uh, that yeah. are gathering that. You have some website like for in Ireland in MHRA or whatever. So you have to go, but you have to go to each website to go to get that. Exactly. Then. It's not convenient, and because unfortunately
1: most of the U.S. only speaks one language. Yeah. And is very. Um, very biased, of course, to everything that happens in the U.S., and they don't want to do anything that would require a lot of work or time, so they don't learn what all the other databases are, and they don't actively go out and get that information. But what we have in our own procedure for post-market surveillance is a list of all the websites for Europe and Australia and Canada and U.S. Um, And if you have other markets, if there are other markets, add those here too, so we actually help people and I just updated those links about a month ago. Okay. So all the links on our procedure are updated. So people are like, where do you find this stuff? Well, by our procedure. <laughs> because that, that's what I did. I completely went through the whole entire thing. And a lot of those um, a lot of those website links were provided to me over time by other notified body consultants that like yourself that specialize in European post market surveillance and things. And so they know right where to look. They know the languages and like, okay, this is the link I use for uh, the Czech Republic. And this is the one I use for the French uh, database. And so that, that's what you need. You need to either go to the your I'm sorry, the Europa website and identify all the links for the different countries country by country. um, Or you have to engage a consultant that knows the European system really well and speaks four or five
0: languages like yourself and, Exactly. They can, they can look that stuff up for you. So um, here mainly this is I call it the manual mod. So mainly yes. you are, as I say, it's labor intense. You have to go to each website, you have to check each website, you have to verify, etc. Um, there are a lot of um other methodology, I suppose, but um Is there something that is more automatic that I I can go and just click on a button and find more data and and then I'm done? (laughs) Um, I won't say you're done, but yes, there are
1: databases out there that will speed up the process a lot. Um, The question is, um, how big is your company and how many products do you have? Yeah. So if you are a startup company, which is the bulk of my customers and you only have, one product, and it's not even on the market yet, you probably don't have any revenues and can't afford those databases. So in those cases, you should come to somebody like me that has already invested in those software databases, and we can do the searches for you. We know the software, we know it efficiently, and we own the license. And so one of those tools that our company is invested in is Basil Systems. Okay. Um, And that software works really well in if I need to look up something on the FDA database, I go there first because it's faster than the FDA database by, like, 10 to 1. Like, when I wanted to go through that search to find out what whether the 19 orders for 522 post-market surveillance were uh, a 510K product or they were a novo product, I was able to go in that database in literally, like, five minutes. I had looked at all 19 and anybody that's gone into the FDA database knows it takes you five minutes to get the first record. Exactly. <laughs> so if nothing else, just the speed at which I can access the data is so much faster. But basil system also has uh, ability to save a database. So once you create the database of a product for a customer, um, so I only wanna look at this, 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 and this, you can save that and it will always give you that data for that product profile. And I have 75 different clients I can do that for. So it saves me tons of money and time. But it also gives me access to European databases. And as the Unimed database comes online, it will give me more and more and more. So it's future-proof. It's, it's not. I'm not going to have to replace it once Unimed comes online. It's going to instantly give me a, a funnel of much more data than I can handle Uh, Once Unimed's really pumping out that information, and it already, I believe, gives me the Australian information and Canadian information. So I'm getting information from these databases already. Um, And sometimes I'll do a sanity check, like, do I get the same number of leads? And they've been improving it over time. So what I was getting originally, um, I was like, these aren't matching up. Now they're matching up perfectly like this is the exact same number of records because we went through that exercise a few months ago to make sure we for a product we were getting the same results on the FDA website the same results on that that database so it speeds it up I'm allowed to save database sets and I'm also able to um look at other data sources around the world but you occasionally have to do a a, a fact check and make sure the other things are there. Um, the other thing that I really like about that particular database is when you click on a record, if it says there is an adverse event report, you can click on it and it'll take you to the native record on the FDA website. If you want to go to the source, same thing for so for adverse event reports, recall reports. If it's a five twenty two uh, post markets surveillance or it's a past study. Those things, you can access them directly. You just click on the hyperlink in the database, and it takes you right to it. Um, And that's a best practice in all the systems. They should have the ability to get you back to the original record, um, which is something you'd expect on the FDA website. You click on the link, and it'll take you to the actual uh, public record. But it also shows you fields in there that are not accessible when you go on the FDA website which is what a lot of people don't realize, Okay, um, you're only getting a subset of public fields that the FDA thought were useful to you, but you don't get the whole record. So when I purchase this database, I get access to a whole bunch of other records. They're skimming directly from the individual records. So the only way you could get that on the FDA website is if you click on each of individual record and read it. Whereas what they've done, they've skimmed the information directly from the source and then built their own database and allow you to search it your own way. And they skim it daily. So I get much more information, many more fields, and I can do a a natural language algorithm search instead of a Boolean search. And I can do it for the whole database and I can parse it any way I want. I can parse it by year, I can parse it by product code, I can parse it by uh, country, by customer, by, by company, by uh, review panel. You can't do that on the FDA website. And so, in, so that terms, alone
0: pays for it in terms in terms of uh, of of this this uh, this system, for example, this database, as you said, um, as you mentioned, if you have just maybe a few products, maybe it's not interesting to get that. Uh, it's more interesting to go through a consultant, but if you have a, a big portfolio, investing on this kind of database can save a lot of time because I suppose I would, hiring a person to do that can take a lot of time and can take a, yeah, a lot of resources there. I think that
1: the transition point is probably around three or four products. Okay. Because I know from myself, when I managed somebody doing that work, they could finish all the work in a quarter. Okay once you have more than one of these you're going to do per quarter, you need a database, a tool that can help you expedite it. So somewhere between one and four is the transition point. I don't know whether it's two or three or four, but somewhere in there is the transition point where it makes sense to buy that licensed software. And it really would be uh, product dependent and company dependent. If you're developing a bunch of other products in the future, Buy it now so you can use that information to help you design better products, which is the proactive risk management piece um, for 14971. Go and identify hazards and risks before you design a product and have them be inputs into your design. And so if you're designing and developing multiple products, you definitely need that. If you have multiple products on the market, you need it. But if you have two products and you're not developing any more,
0: probably not worth it. No, better as you said, go to a consultant and who, who can who can do that for for you directly, which is uh, which is yeah. uh, your case. Uh, in terms of um, um, in terms of uh, of the what you just mentioned, so what is interesting is that this exercise of post marketing surveillance, there is one part that is kind of legally um, required. You need to do that because it's it's required by the law, and there is another part as you mentioned because you have to understand what the competitors are doing or how, uh, what kind of issues there are with this type of product so that you can also improve your products and provide a better experience to your customers. So you have to look at the whole picture and not just think, oh, the law asked me to do that, so I have to do it. No, there is also the part where you are trying exactly. to, to give a good so, product also to your customers.
1: So one of the things that we do, we're, we're doing human factors projects and in, in cybersecurity, a lot of... Um, regulatory submissions for the first time for a product and when we look at competitor products and we do that analysis for them we identify which projects products are bad so sort of the bad actors that have a lot of quality problems and recalls we identify those up front and then we identify ones that have none okay and we share that information and report with a company and say you know this particular product, it, it has a lot of problems, and you want to make sure those are addressed in yours because the FDA is going to ask about them. They don't want to have another product that has a bunch of recalls. But at the same time, this other product over here that's also a competitor, they have none of these. So what are they doing differently from you other than not reporting? If it's just you're not reporting, I don't want to copy that. But <laughs> Exactly. If, if the If the issue is yours by design doesn't have that risk, or you have a more effective risk control. I want to copy what they did, and so I'll give an example. The first company I ever worked with was a company called Z Medica, as a medical device company. Okay. And um, Z Medica had uh, a product for hemostatic. It was a hemostatic agent that stopped bleeding. And the FDA sent out a public service warning that said, "Do not use any kind of product like Flow Seal around the spine, because it can cause paralysis." Because the product swells to stop bleeding Ah. and it applies pressure on the spinal cord and can cause you to be paralyzed. And so a whole bunch of companies all of a sudden contacted us and said, Is this a problem for your product? And said, No, it's actually not. So I sent out proactively a message to all our customers You should be aware of this warning, but it doesn't apply to our product because our product doesn't expand at all. Our product works by adsorption instead of absorption. So AD instead of AB. So it doesn't change in size. So therefore, it can't put a pressure on the spinal cord. So you could use it in this area of the body without worrying about that risk. You have other risks because we've solved the problem a different way. And everybody was aware of that. But you don't have this risk. So this warning letter and all these adverse events and recalls that recently occurred in the relabeling, not applicable to us. So you don't need to worry about it.
0: So, it's so that don't- worked out well. <laughs> it's, it's it's important to gather those information so that you can also proactively also go to your customers and inform them and, and do that. So it's why I'm saying yeah, the, this post marketing surveillance activity uh, is not is really important also for improving the quality of your products or having a, a better knowledge in terms of uh, risks to your products. Or if there is, you can reassure your customers to say no, there is no risk at all. Don't worry, everything is fine. Is under control. So which is a uh, uh, great. You talked about FDA. Um, Is there any other issues on post-marketing surveillance that FDA has noticed, or there is other points where we can say that FDA recommends do it that way to to not have any issue or, or some best practices? Yes. So
1: the FDA recently, as an emerging issue that they're trying to address, is trying to come up with an option for trend reporting of device malfunctions. Um, I don't think this is going to be a major game changer for anybody. I think it's going to be the things that aren't reportable, but they're malfunctions of the device that happen pretty regularly. Those things, um, it would make sense to trend report, Uh, but something where it's a serious injury or death, they're not going to let you do trend reporting. So something that's a minor injury that happens all the time, would be a perfect example of the kind of thing that they're trying to target but it only makes sense for a company that has hundreds of of events like this that are reportable now but wouldn't be reportable under this trend reporting so a, a perfect example of that would be band-aids everybody knows what a bandit and you know sorry to j and j for using your trade name but <laughs> exactly they're band-aids <laughs> uh bandages if you have an aggressive adhesive on a bandage and you pull it off your skin, if you're an infant or an, or an elderly person, you can pull the skin right off with it. And then you have a more serious issue than yeah. whatever you had the bandage on there for. But if you go swimming as a kid, so you have your your six-year-old goes swimming at the pool and they have a bandage on, you need that aggressive, durable adhesive or the bandage will fall off in the pool. Or if you go take a shower or you wash your hands and you have a bandage on your hand, Those are things that will cause the bandage to fall off. And believe it or not, if the bandage falls off in the pool or if it pulls off a little bit of skin from around the wound, um, both of those are considered reportable.
0: Okay, so yeah. But they're uh, a
1: nuisance report. And if you go to somebody like the companies that – I can't give their names because I used to audit them, but uh, I was the guy that went out and audited all the bandage companies.
0: Exactly. (laughs) And they
1: would literally have hundreds or even thousands – of adverse events. They'd have to report every single month. Wow. And they would have they would have warning letters from the FDA because they weren't keeping up with the reporting in a timely manner. Mm -hmm. Like, well, how can I do investigations on 3000 complaints in a month? You know, CBS
0: decides to give me all of them at one time. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's it's also that uh, to to say that there is uh, people, uh, yeah, that are receiving that. So you have also to understand that, yeah, it's like a manual uh, review or such. I mean, maybe they have some automatic things, but mainly there there is some uh, manual manual activities also. In Europe, they already have a place for that. It's called trend reporting. Yeah, and so it's a separate section of the
1: regulation, different article. Uh, I don't remember. It's like eighty nine or something. Exactly. But but um in. In the U.S., they're thinking about creating a law for this to reduce the amount of reporting that they have to follow up on.
0: <laughs> so, yeah, and and this is coming also from a, an IMDRF uh, guidance that is saying exactly how to execute that. So they are they are copying yeah. what is mentioned on the IMDRF, and U- Europe has done that. I suppose, yeah, a lot of other countries will will start also to do that, which uh, which is uh, interesting here. Uh, Great. Anything else about post-marketing surveillance? I think we have really covered all the topics for for the US. I I think the only other
1: thing is just sort of a a recommendation for companies in general. Okay. Um, The entire world has um, cell phones. The entire world has cell phones. Um, Some countries that are what we consider developing nations have bypassed the old landline systems and only have cell phones. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, Korea would be an example of that. So these countries that have cell phones basically everywhere, every single consumer has those. You can get post-market surveillance from your customers, whether they're an end user that's a layperson or it's an end user that's a doctor or a nurse or um, a pediatrician, or it's an ambulance driver, or a paramedic, whoever it is, you can get feedback from them if they use your device. So instead of looking at it as a task that you don't want to do and you want to get out of, instead, think of it as a way to build a better relationship with your customers to reorder products, to test out pilot programs on new products, to get kind of like focus group information. You need to integrate post-market surveillance into your marketing program and to help you do, identify problems with your product and identify solutions and, and get that proactive feedback, embrace post-market surveillance and build a mobile app that does it well instead of trying to avoid it. Yep. And that's absolutely required for the companies that have implants. No, it's Because great. you're required to have registries. You're required to report on this stuff every single year. You're going to have people looking at it. And it's just a matter of time before you're the last um, buggy whip company
0: that doesn't have it. Exactly. No, it's great, <laughs> and and I'm sure I'm sure. Yeah, this this is mainly something I hope that people are listening because yeah, as we said, we are not here just to say oh the law says you should do that. You have also the part where. This is also a quality uh, service, quality activity that will help you to uh, okay. improve your, your products and provide the right information or alert if there is really an issue uh, that you can already avoid, or your customer can avoid. So it's mainly something that is really, really important here. Uh, Rob, um, what I mean, as now we talked a lot about post marketing service, can we tell more about you and your company? How, why people should contact you and what kind of service can you provide to them?
1: Um, our website is medical device, academy.com all one word, medical device, academy.com. Yeah. Uh, It has Academy in the name because I like to teach and I like to do webinars and YouTube, but it's a full service quality and regulatory consulting firm. Um, more than half of our work is FDA submissions. More than half of our customers are international. So, um, every single morning I have a call with somebody outside the U S that's, um, And usually in the evening, I'll have calls with Southeast Asia. So it's truly a global market for us. And we're constantly dealing with CE marking questions, FDA questions, a company that has CE and wants to get FDA, or a company that's in Europe that says, we got the the quote from our notified body and we want to go to the U.S. first. (laughs) Exactly.
0: Well, we can't get a a quote out of
1: our notified body, so we're going to the U.S. first. Yeah, yeah. Or what do you think about... Canada. So we also work with Canadian market. So we are a full service quality system and regulatory consulting firm. We have 12 people. Um, We have a contact us page. So if you go to the homepage up in the top right-hand corner, there's a link for contact us. Um, Lindsay Walker is the director of sales. So there's a hyperlink there to schedule meetings with her on Calendly. This also ones for me. I'm available six to six uh, Eastern time. Lindsay and I are both on Eastern but every single one of our consultants that works with clients has a Calendly app. Many of us will work in the evening, will accommodate different hours. So that's how you get a hold of us. Mine even has, here's how you contact me on WhatsApp. So I can tell you for a fact that Sharon, myself, and Boomer are getting di- buried in, by WhatsApp text by
0: various customers constantly. I can can imagine. I can imagine. So uh, I will um, place anyway, all the links uh, on the show notes. Also the links of uh, Basil system because you have mentioned this uh, uh, database. So I think we can also mention uh, that so that people can go. I think they can also have a demo with the Basil system. They can have uh, a a check of of this and verify uh, it's really interesting for them. There
1: is one more thing um, on February 9th. We're going to be doing, I, I love this topic that you came up with, and my content on my website and post-market surveillance is from 2015. Okay. Um, not the procedure, but the the webinar. So I want to update that webinar with one for post-market surveillance requirements in Europe. Okay. And then another one for post-market surveillance requirements in the US. Yeah. So the 8 a.m. Eastern time one will be for Europe. The 4 p.m. Eastern time one will be for the US, and both are going to be free. So I've already given you the hyperlink in the chat, so you can put that in your show notes. I'll update that this weekend so people can register, but it will be a live YouTube session in the morning and a live YouTube session in the afternoon. So if you're a global company, you want to watch both. If you're a, European only company. You look at the morning one. If you're a US only company, when you look at the afternoon one. But if you're interested in post market surveillance in general, watch both.
0: No, it's great because I, I think there is a, a lot of people that are looking for this information, how to do post marketing surveillance and learning more about that. Uh, so it's great. So I will put that, uh, all those information on the show notes, and uh, people uh, will directly go and subscribe to it. And I hope yeah they will be enjoying these the sessions. Um, Rob, it was really a pleasure to have you. Thank you for all the information that you have provided. And uh, I wish you a nice day. Have a great day. You're very welcome. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. So if you like this episode, please provide a review on the platform where you are listening to it. And also don't forget to share it with your colleagues. Thank you very much.